being episode 522. I'll make sure I don't butcher it because I've got I got screenshotted right here because I always end up butchering titles of uh, Taylor Downing, the author of 1983, Reagan and Dropov in a World on the Brink, about uh, well, primarily about um, excuse me Operation Able Archer. And uh, side note, there's nothing like a brand new camera to really showcase your acne. You know, maybe I like the 720p camera instead of the 4K one. But, Mr. Downing, please introduce yourself, sir. Uh, my name is Taylor Downing. I'm a historian based in the UK. Uh, for my, part of my career, I was producing historical documentaries. Um, and I worked on a big CNN Ted Turner documentary in the 1990s called Cold War. Big 24-hour uh, series, uh, amongst many other things. Um, but in the last 10, 15 years, I've been doing writing rather than TV work. But this subject of 1983 sort of spans the two, because I made a documentary about the subject back in 2008. I produced the documentary. And um, I've also written a book, as, as you just said, uh, with the latest information that's available on this remarkable story. 1983, for everybody listening, as I was telling you before, the variety of guests I have. So for all of my, uh, my Cold War buffs listening, this is one of those episodes. I highly, highly, and as I was just telling you beforehand, hey, I'm my own boss. Nobody tells me I have guests on. I only have on authors that I want to have on. I love the book. The narrator, I'm an audiobook connoisseur. The narrator's perfect. The book is terrifying. The book is, to me, I didn't know until 2021, is the lesser known almost Cuban Missile Crisis, if you will. It's 20 years exact, or no, no, 20, 19 years removed, but it, it, it's the it's a newer, it's a Reagan-esque uh, take on the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the scariest thing about it is Cuban Missile Crisis, right, the whole world knew, right? Everyone was watching, everyone kind of, was was it McNamara or, or Bobby Kennedy? One of them said, it was like, this might be our last Saturday. Like, they kind of knew, right? And it's, as you mentioned in your book, and now we know that there actually were some already assembled uh, short to intermediate range nuclear weapons on the island of Cuba. And it would have gone hot if LeMay had his druthers and went in there. 1983 is so creepy because we had no, the CIA was kind of watching it. It was a one-sided Cuban Missile Crisis. It was. It was It was completely happened behind Cuba's doors. As you say, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a very public affair. The president was addressing the nation. John F. Kennedy addressed the nation on many occasions. There was live television coverage from the Caribbean as U.S. warships intercepted Soviet uh, merchant ships and uh, and the like. Um, many people I know in America looked from their workplace or from their home to the nearest nuclear shelter to to work out you know the the quickest route should the missiles come in and so on. Everybody knew what was going on. Events in November 1983 happened completely behind closed doors. None of us knew what was happening. When I first got onto this story, I looked up in my work diary. What was I actually doing on the evening of the 8th of November 1983? Because we can be absolutely precise about when the peak uh, of, of this scary moment took place that we're going to talk about. But the peak took place on the evening of the 8th of November 1983. And I looked up in my work diary. What was I doing? It was just another day at the office. It was just a normal, regular day. Um, and uh, and as Robert Gates, who was then the in 1983, was the deputy director of the CIA, later became, of course, the Secretary of Defense, 
Uh, as Robert Gates said to said to us uh, at one point, he said, we might have been at the brink of nuclear war and we didn't even know it. That's the craziest thing. It's, um, as everyone that listens to this podcast uh, knows, and as you'll now learn, I make weird analogies, but uh, I was playing a video game the other day and there's like a cut scene where your guy's walking off and there's like a CIA sniper and he's watching your guy and he decides for whatever, I don't know, stupid. But it just kind of dawned on me. I was like, Man, like, I wonder if if you'd ever know if at one point you'd been in the crosshairs of someone. Like, I don't think I have reason to. I'm not in the military. I'm not a, a political, you know, revolutionary. I'm just doing a podcast. I'm sure I've upset some people. But I don't think I've been in the crosshairs. But I was thinking, like, how how would you know? You'd only know if you fired, if you called the trigger. Then you'd know. Yeah. And we would only really know, have known how panicked the Soviets had become in November 1983 um, if they'd actually launched these weapons against the West, which they were about to do. Their entire nuclear arsenal was put on standby. These giant SS-19, you know, 100-ton, 30-meter-tall, 100-feet-tall missiles with eight warheads on, on each missile, the crews to fire them were standing by for the fire order. The SS-19 missiles have been deployed to their uh, places in the in the sorry the SS-20. I'm sorry, the SS-20 missiles have been deployed uh, into to, to their hidden spots in the forests and the swamps of Russia, hidden from overseas uh, from from, from uh, aerial photography, satellite photography. The submarines, the nuclear power, the, the nuclear armed submarines have been deployed to their position, their battle stations under the Arctic ice. There were aircraft on the end of the runway in East Germany and Poland, engines running, waiting for the order to, to, to go. It, 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 got, it got to that to that point. It's Cuban Missile Crisis is the old Western. They're standing, they're both guys are standing in the middle of the road, right? Like the saloon and the whatever, the general store. And it's, you know, they're both kind of tickling the trigger. This was, this was Jason Bourne. Someone's got the scope on you and you're just, you know, you're walking back from McDonald's. You have no idea there's a bead on you. But You're having a happy day. No idea. And to me, that's what's more terrifying is because because we didn't know about it. We also – we'll go into that later. It has it happened again. But, yeah, I kind of want to touch on that. Um, I've had on Garrett Graff before, author of Raven Rock, whose whole book about the nuclear bunker system. And I just love to sort of – you know, no pun intended – the brinkmanship of it. I, I just think it's fascinating, the hierarchies, the different tiers of alerts. And uh, – yeah, what you described, the, uh, those mobile launchers, everyone's, I'm sure you've seen them if you can't name them. It's those big trucks that kind of look like 18 wheelers, but they've got like 30 wheels and they carry the big, you know, the, they carry, it's instead of a rocket launcher, it's an ICBM launcher. But uh, I thought it was fascinating how you said, yeah, they go out into the woods, right? It's within like 150 kilometers of their base. Normally there's, I think you said only 10 to 15% out in the field, but on that day they put out 50 and they had their ready to go. And they have camouflage nets on them, which, you know, makes sense. Sure, you don't want satellites. But they also are radio absorbent. So they can't even so the, can't, can't even pick up the, uh, I guess, the RF uh, waves coming off of them, which is mind-boggling. And, and the, the, the interviews that we did with the people who remembered that, the, the Soviets or Russians, who then, then Soviets, they all remembered this evening, that, that evening, the 8th of November 1983, really clearly, because partly because it was linked, it was the day after the 
the big re revolution, the October mm -hmm. November revolution celebrations, which every year was a big event in the Soviet Union. So they remember it being linked with that. Um, but also they remember it as the only time in their careers when they were put on this final state of alert. And the guy in the bunker, in the silo bunker, with these huge um, SS-19 missiles, the equivalent to the Thor or the Atlas, no, not, not the Thor, sorry, the Atlas or the Titan missiles in the missile silos in the Midwest of the United States. He told me that on that one night, for the first time ever, a third person appeared. There were two men yeah. who had dual control, the, um, the, 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 the keys, keys yeah. could launch, that could launch. The two separate men had to operate the thing, the key, turn their keys at exactly the same time as, as rehearsed and practiced. So on, the, on this night, there was a third person appeared. Who is this person? And he just says, I'm here to make sure that you, if tonight you get the order, you follow the orders. And he was, as you just said, he was KGB. Nothing there. Secret policeman, just to make sure that you follow orders. Right over your shoulder, just to make sure you don't get any cold feet, because now is not the time for cold feet, which is just, I mean, and yeah, like you said, they, you know, they, they always said that the war would come on the anniversary, right? So that, you know, they knew, they thought it was going to come on the eve of a big anniversary. And mm -hmm. it's, I mean, you, and again, you can kind of see that one-sided Cuban Missile Crisis, where, and I know I'm butchering it, I don't remember if it was Bobby or, or McNamara, but apparently they were leaving the White House or something, and they're like, this might be our last Saturday. But you yeah. kind of have that one-sidedness, right? You had one of those missileers say say goodbye to your, you know, they, or wife and kids thought it was just, you know, whatever, Friday. But he was saying goodbye, but like actually saying goodbye because he didn't know. Indeed, absolutely. Um, and they really thought it was. But on both sides, Tommy, on both sides, <laughs> there was a, a conference after the Cold War was over. There was a... Um, one of these sort of conferences where both sides get together to sort of, not to reenact, but to sort of remember. the And they had a one de devoted to the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. And guys were leaving the Kremlin on that same Saturday saying, I don't know we'll ever go back to work tomorrow. This could be the last night of our lives. So in Washington and in Moscow, there was this sort of very public awareness that this was a disastrous um moment or potentially disastrous moment in, in sort of world history not not the case in november 1983 no, nobody nobody knew about it <laughs> you uh you mentioned a um an alert level that uh i thought was fascinating because of the way you described it i know but was it was it strict or, or it it's where they it wasn't just that they were you know on Ready alert. Yes, yes the, the strip alert. Strip, yeah. They sat at yeah, the yeah. end of the runway. That's the aircraft. Yeah. The aircraft at the end of the yeah, runway. Yeah, yeah. called a strip alert. And you can only do it for, for so, for yeah. know, half an hour, say, because yeah. you're absolutely, you know, the pilots are there waiting. Their engines are running. They're just waiting. You know, all the brakes are on. They're waiting to take the brakes off yeah. and fly to whatever target they've been assigned. You know, it, and you can only do that for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Either you, either you, fly off and aim for your target or, or you have to be replaced by another squadron that comes yeah. out. I thought, it? yeah, I, there's something about that that I thought was so sexy. I mean, there's always, right, there's, I mean, with like the PSYOPs, right, I, you know, Eisenhower always said, it's like, we can do this one now, we could do this within 12 hours, we could do this one within 50 hours, but then you're giving away movements to satellites watching you. And then there's obviously, right, I mean, you know, the clacks and sounding and the, you know, the guys off it running out to the B-52s. But that was completely different. It's 
it's no because uh, there's even something there's like a level above like scrambling in the U.S. and I think it's called a cart start where they have these like explosives that like quickly start at B fifty two. But even that is like there's a little more to it. This for everybody listening. This is end of the runway, like brakes on, engines. I mean, you know, your helmets aren't off waiting for it. It's helmets on, like hands on, like the throttles, and it's just you know, it's the Olympics, right? The guy has the pistol and you're. You're looking at your your weight, and like you said, you can only stay in that position for so long. And I think, well, not only fuel, but what you also said was the crews got emotionally exhausted. They'd sit there, and then they'd be like, you know, you know, take me out, coach. Put in the next one. I think the sprint analogy is a very good one. You know, get ready, get set. Yeah, and then you know, it's and it's not even like oh, you know, miss start, and they you know, miss start is the end of the world. There's no, well, not really missile. I guess you could come back, but just insanity. And then the other thing you talked about, um, the uh, the typhoon. Uh, am I getting that right? The typhoon class submarines, those massive uh, Soviet subs, and, yeah. and they've yeah, got these the, enormous submarines yeah. that were often sitting at the bottom of the ocean for months insane. and months at a time. Absolutely yeah, yeah. insane. And uh, yeah, I remember actually seeing some images of the inside of one a couple of years ago. And yeah, they have uh, there's like a hot tub in there. Uh, that's right yeah yeah. and it's it's the most in a submarine i mean it's just yeah which is i mean it's one it's one thing to be in like a military vessel for there to be like leisure and then there's like a whole another level of like irony when it's like the soviet you know no no excess no capitalism and it's like they had a hot tub but it's the same thing it's because it was like they got to be comfortable because that thing's just that is i mean it's the it's the probably one of the most, or I would say probably the most important leg of the nuclear triad is, I mean, that is true mutual assured destruction. We're going to sit under the Arctic ice. We've got, you know, 12, 24 warheads, each one with eight MIRVs on it, each one 10 times stronger than the Nagasaki bomb. And we're just going to wait here. And, you know, you might do a decapitation strike. You might take us all out. But we're going to rise up after a month, six months, whatever, and our missiles aren't that accurate, so we're not going to aim at your bases. We're going to, I don't know, go for, we'll roughly aim for Times Square, Chicago, and, uh, I don't know, maybe Central L.A. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, it, it actually inspired me so much, I went out and found two former nuclear submariners this past week, authors, and I mentioned your book, and I said, I'm reading this right now. Could you, uh, would you come? And so they're actually going to come on sometime next week to talk about it. So your book inspired me for that. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've been going, I just realized you obviously wrote the book and I've listened to it several times now. We haven't really gone into what Able Archer is. So for everyone listening, it's, it was a drill. I'll give you a really quick example. It was a drill that we were practicing and the Soviets were afraid that it wasn't a drill. It was actually covertly us getting ready for nuclear war. But you, the master on this subject, could you give a more in-depth explanation of exactly what Able Archer was and why we were doing it? Sure. Uh, I think we've just got to go back, just spool back a little bit, because the Soviet reaction to Able Archer doesn't make sense unless you see it in the context of the year 1983, a very dangerous year, very uh, tense year. And let's just remind ourselves, Reagan was in the White House, talking very aggressively. His rhetoric was really powerful against the Soviet Union. He he called it the evil empire. Then he announced his strategic defense initiative, which immediately was was, um, tabbed the Star Wars initiative, that they would build a shield over the United States and shoot down incoming missiles in in space. Um, There were these psyops, there were these... uh, 
and, and sorry, and also what Reagan was doing was rearming America. You know, after a period of uh, perceived relative weakness, they were rolling out stealth bombers, new tanks, the M1 Abrams tanks, the F-18 um, fighter. There was a, a whole new arsenal of uh, equipment was coming out. Caspar Weinberger was uh, Secretary of Defense, and he said in his very first press conference in 1981, my mission is to rearm America. So America was acting tough, talking tough. It was spending a lot more on its uh, defense expenditure. It had roughly doubled over two or three years from the end of the Carter era. And in the, on, on the other side, in the, uh, in the Kremlin, there was this elderly leadership. Brezhnev was there until November 1982. Uh, he'd almost become a, a, a joke. He was so infirm. He was so decrepit. Um, he would read out prepared speeches and then step back and let anybody else answer or somebody else answer questions. And he's replaced in November 1982, not by a younger man, not by a new generation, but he's replaced by the head of the KGB, who is roughly the same age, a man called Yuri Andropov. Um, Andropov brings the sort of paranoia of the KGB. You know, they're all out to get us, whether it's internally or externally. He brings the paranoia of the KGB right to the center of the Kremlin. And he'd set up this KGB operation. It was called Operation Ryan. Uh, Ryan is the, is the acronym for the Soviet words for, for nuclear attack. And um, the KGB agents all around the world were told to look for signs that the West was preparing to attack. They really thought that they, they, they were hurt, they were offended by Reagan's rhetoric, but they actually believed that he might be planning an attack, maybe a decapitation attack just to take out the leadership in Moscow, maybe an attack against their missile systems. Um, uh, and they, they convinced themselves that... that that this was a genuine possibility. So intelligence agents all around the world, in London, in Paris, in Washington, are told to look for signs that the West is about to attack. And of course, I think what we now know about intelligence agencies is if you ask these operatives to find evidence of something, they don't turn around to their bosses and say, you're crazy, don't be ridiculous, everything's fine over here, nothing like that's going on. They say, oh, right, well, in order to be promoted, uh, in order to be good for my career, uh, I've got to find evidence of what these guys are looking for. So it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Um, the, 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 the KGB heads say, find us evidence that the West are about to attack. And lo and behold, the intelligence operatives go out and find evidence. I mean, or fabricate evidence or make up evidence. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're told to do perfectly sensible things like um, monitor the leadership uh, look out for increasing blood banks being built up in hospitals, see if people are planning to evacuate or changing their schedule or, or something. But then they're told to do crazy things like count the number of lights that are on in the Pentagon at night. Um, they, they think that if, if America is planning an attack, then the guys in the Pentagon will be working late. And so if you just count the lights on and suddenly they increase, this is clearly a sign that America is about to launch a nuclear attack. The same thing in London. They had to count the lights on in the Ministry of Defense. It didn't seem to occur to them. These might be operatives cleaning the offices, you know, if, if there were lights on in, in, in the night. So it all got rather absurd, but it, it was a sign of this Soviet paranoia that that they were believing the sort of rhetoric that was coming from, from Washington. And then a series of events happened in the summer, in, at the end of August 1983, 
the um, the Korean airline disaster, which I'm sure many of your, your your listeners will remember, this airliner for reasons that we still don't really quite understand today, veers 365 miles off course, crossing the Kamcha, um, uh Peninsula and then the Sakhalin Island. These are sensitive Soviet defense areas. Um, and the Soviet early warning system responds by shooting this airliner down. They got confused. Their radar got confused with a spy mission that was going on earlier in that, that night and hopelessly inefficient and incompetent bungling. They actually shoot a civilian airliner, a jumbo 747 down with 269 people killed, which provokes outrage in Washington. You know, Reagan calls this a terrorist act. With, with an, sorry to interrupt, with an American congressman on there, correct? He was, that's right, yes, a, a right-wing um, congressman. Yeah. And there was some suggestion that this was a sort of bizarre assassination attempt just at this one man. But, but you know, I don't think there's any any evidence for that at all. It was just bungling uh, on, on behalf of the Soviet fighter defences that didn't distinguish between a military plane and a civilian airliner, a jumbo airliner. Um, so the, the tension that, that was intense throughout the year, it sort of suddenly ratcheted up a bit further at the end of August. And then one of the, the, the things they were looking for, one of the things that the Soviets were convinced would, would be the sign of an Im- imminent attack was if American bases around the world go on a high state of alert. And at the end of October 1983, there was a huge truck bomb in Beirut, um, 240 U.S. Marines were killed as this Hezbollah a suicide driver took a bomb right into the U.S. Marine base. Uh, terrible, terrible incident, terrible terrorist act. But the response was that American bases around the world went on to a heightened state of alert in case there were going to be other terrorist attacks. What do they do in the KGB? They don't link this alertness with the events in Beirut. They think, aha, here we look, here's another, here's another indicator American military bases are, are, are going on a heightened state of alert. There's extra security around them. They must be preparing to launch a nuclear attack. Um, also, at the end of October, the Americans, uh, Reagan ordered the invasion of the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, where there was a communist, um, strong communist uh, sort of attempted takeover. Uh, the, the invasion was very successful. But Car- the Caribbean was a Commonwealth island, a British Commonwealth island, and they hadn't told the British government, they hadn't told Margaret Thatcher that this attack was coming. She was very, very offended. British territory has been, uh, or Commonwealth territory has been invaded without us knowing. So there's a huge communications traffic between London and Washington. In Moscow, they don't know what the traffic is saying, but they can pick up the signals that are going, this is another signal. This is another indicator, you know, another box ticked that, 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 that these wily Americans are about to attack us. Then comes, and now I'm coming back to your question, uh, in, with all this background context in the run-up to November 1983, then NATO starts this exercise called Able Archer. It's an annual exercise, and it's, um, it's, it's an exercise that practices what would happen if there was a conventional war that NATO lost. So it doesn't actually deploy troops, it just deploys radar operators. It was called a command post exercise. And the people playing the war game in a a bunker in Belgium 
um, get fed in these messages that uh, the Soviets are attacking in Greece, the Soviets are attacking in the Red Army is attacking in Yugoslavia, then the Red Army attacks across the Fulda Plain in Germany into West Germany. Uh, and they have to figure out a response. None of this, of course, is going on. It's just a war game. Um, and the end stages of, of the war game is that the NATO chiefs request the use of nuclear weapons to um, defend the West from this overwhelming onslaught of conventional uh, Red Army troops, the Warsaw Pact troops. And the Soviets are now getting really panicked and at this point convince themselves maybe this isn't a war game, maybe this isn't an exercise, maybe this is the real thing. They partly think that <laughs> because in their own plans, if they're ever going to attack the West, they're going to use a war game as a deception. They're going to attack uh, at, at the end of, of a war game. So they think, well, that's what the Americans and the NATO operatives are doing to us. And that all comes to a head, as we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, it all comes to a head on the evening of the 8th of November, 1983, when Andropov, uh, who's a very ill man at this point, he's on a kidney dialysis machine, He's not in his office in the Kremlin. He's actually in a clinic just outside Moscow. Um, and uh, he sits up through the night with the man with the nuclear codes. It's the equivalent to the, the what's called the nuclear football in the States. It's called the Cheget system in the, the Soviet Union. But it was a similar system. There was a series of codes that only the sort of head of state had the authority. Well, actually, it was slightly different in the Soviet Union in those days. But anyway, only a small number of people had the authority to issue the codes that would launch um, the nuclear weapons. So all this arsenal, as we were saying earlier, the ICBMs, the portable missiles, the submarines, the aircraft, they were all on maximum stage of alert on this evening as the Soviets had convinced themselves that this wasn't just a NATO war game, but this was the first stage of a preemptive assault by the West and they had to be prepared, and their fingers were literally hovering over the nuclear button to, to, to press that button to launch this tirade of nuclear weapons against Western Europe and North America. Which would have, beautiful explanation, which would have been the end of the world. Yeah, indeed, very quickly, because what, what would have happened in a major nuclear exchange, because the, the, the United States would then have responded, as Britain would, Britain also had nuclear capability, uh, Britain and the United States would have immediately responded by launching nuclear missiles against the Soviet Union. So probably most of Western and Eastern Europe, probably a lot of uh, North America and a lot of uh, Western Asia would have been destroyed. But then that would have created what, what was called in those days, uh, what still is called, you know, a nuclear winter, whereby the radioactive cloud and dust sort of goes right around the world. So, you know, whether you're in New Zealand or South Africa or Argentina, you know, nothing to do with the conflict, but everybody would have been affected by this. In fact, Tom, I think probably it wouldn't just be the end of human life. It could almost have been the end of all, all life on this planet. 100% would have been the end of the biosphere. And as you said, except for the scorpions and the cockroaches, right? That's right. They, yeah, they might survive. They'd yeah. inherit the earth. It's, um, and it was, the, right, it was that quote you used. It was right when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. That's right. right. Yes, that's what's uh, near airy said when uh, when he was told uh, Julius Nyerere was the president of Tanzania 
and uh, he came up with that. Yeah, yeah. When the elephants fight, the, the, the grass gets hurt. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a hundred percent what would have happened. And um, and then it's like, you know, off with the American flag behind me. I mean, obviously, I'm going to take my side. And as you said, I mean, you know, they shot down a civilian airliner. It's very easy for us and myself, guilty probably more than anyone, to you know, yeah, they are the evil empire. They have no regard for human life. But I mean. You look at Eisenhower, I think Eisenhower's reports, or I think his first reactions when he got to look at the first U-2 flights was something along the lines of, like, they're, he goes, oh, they're just people? Like, everyone in the intelligence community was looking at it, and it's like, it's not 10 million troops marching around. It was just, you know, it's a lady pushing a cart or, like, an ox pulling some hay, and it's just like, oh, wait, they're just... They're just people too, or you know, you know Reagan's analogy—the you know a, a Susie and a John and an Ivan and a you know whatever. But it's when you t- when you look at that, you then also have to extrapolate, and it's well, they're going to defend their homeland. You know, I can't sit here and and defend the United States and you defend the UK, and then you know we can't pretend like. Although I do agree, I do think it was an evil empire. I mean, the number of people that were killed in the gulags is unfathomable. But at the same time, you know, if you're not Taylor, if you're, you know, Igor and I'm Ivan and we're doing this podcast in a parallel universe where the, you know, the Soviet Union survives, we would be going, you know, I, I kind of see what the Americans were doing. They were defending their homeland. And it's when you have Reagan going out there and jacking up the, you know, the over several years to a couple trillion when he wants to develop SDI under Lieutenant General James Abramson, we're going to shoot down, you know, that that completely destroys the balance of power, the mutual assured destruction of the, you know, the, the old Western with the guns and we're pointing at each other. What that is now is that's an old Western shootout, but now someone has a riot shield. And it's like, well, now you don't really have any deterrence to you shooting, which actually makes, which destabilizes it more. So, I mean, you can't, you can't really blame them i mean you can and i do but like you can't really blame them when you have reagan going they're they're an evil empire when he's going to churches and he's like these are godless heathens you need we need christians for nuclear armament when it's like you know we need lasers in space edward teller right using x-rays to just you know was it the the cassava howitzer the nuclear shape charge we're going to use to shoot down things in space and hey we'll you know we can have no nuclear weapons all right but no sdi i'm sorry we can't do that and it's like we could have a deal and they walk out of reykjavik and it's like can you blame them i mean they're inferior yeah it's i think i think there are several sort of lessons to, to to be taken from 1983 and and one of them is American intelligence knew a massive amount about the military capability. You know, they knew the number of missiles, roughly speaking. They knew the range of the missiles. They knew the aircraft, the submarines. They knew their capacities and their capabilities. What they didn't have any idea about is what the guys in charge were thinking. They had completely lost that sort of level of human understanding of what the other guy's thinking about. And they had no idea that, of the panic uh, that they were generating, that the that Reagan's talk um, and SDI and Star Wars um, accusing the Soviets of being a terrorist state, you know, they weren't giving them respect, yeah. uh, but they had no idea quite how much this was alarming the, 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 the Soviet leadership. 
and that's a, that's a real that's a real issue. You know, there are states today that, that in the West we don't really understand why are they doing what they're doing, why, or why are they thinking what they're thinking. So I think one of the lessons from 1983 is that intelligence has got to understand the mindset of the other side, not just their military capability. You know, you, you don't want to just know how big the boxing glove is that they're wearing. You also want to know are they going to use that boxing glove and why might they use it? So I think that's one of the things that comes out of this. And of course, you know, the postscript to this rather extraordinary story of November 1983 is that when Reagan is told about this Soviet scare, um, and that comes, in fact, through British intelligence, because Britain has a, a mole, a double agent inside the KGB who reports on this panic and passes it on um, from London eventually to Washington and to the White House. Reagan is just blown away. He says, surely they didn't think I was actually going to... You know, we don't do Pearl Harbors. You know, we're not going to launch an attack out of the blue on the Soviet Union. How could they possibly think I was going to do that? But he's very shaken by this. He calls this really scary, you know. So he, is, he becomes determined. I mean, he's, he, he, in, the next, in the 84 presidential election, he sort of tones down his anti-communist stand. And he's looking for an opportunity to reach out, to get to know... The other side. But there's a, still a succession. When Andropov dies in, in 1984, he's succeeded by an even older man, uh, Chernyenko, Alexander Chernyenko, you know, who's even older and even more infirm. And it's not until 1985 when Chernyenko dies. So that's the sort of the third elderly Soviet leader in, in about as many years dying. It's only then that the Politburo decide, right, now we need to go down a generation. Now we need to bring in the new breed of the Soviet leader. And, of course, the person they select who changes the face of history is Mikhail Gorbachev. What does Reagan do? He reaches out. He invites him to meet. And surprise, surprise, when they meet, they get on well. Yeah. Uh, they, they disagree fundamentally over ideological. You know, uh, Gorbachev is a hardline communist. Mm -hmm. But he understands where Reagan's coming from, and Reagan begins to understand where he's coming from. So instantly, there's sort of a, the, the possibility of, of either side pressing the, the button first sort of instantly drops. You know, it's, it, it's transformed. Almost. And it begins a series of events that, you know, we know what happens. There's the Geneva summit, there's Reykjavik, there's Washington, there's the, the first of the big um, uh, arms limitation agreements, intermediate nuclear weapons uh, are, are, are abolished in, uh, or reduced um, in 1988. And really, it's the beginning of the end of the Cold War. So this remarkable, you know, extraordinary event uh, in November 1983, in the end, brings good. It, 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 begins a, it, it brings a realization, probably on both sides, that they need to understand the other guy a bit better. Um, and slowly, the, the process that leads to the end of the Cold War. So it is, it is a remarkable story not just for, for what happens in November 1983, but for the aftermath as well. And you can, it's, <clears throat> you can kind of see, you know, how much, it, and I said this the other day doing a podcast, it's almost kind of odd. It, it'd be funny if it wasn't life and death for billions of people, but it's kind of funny how much just like the most base, almost, almost immature aspects 
uh, of the human psyche come into these things that shape the world. Okay, on a microcosm, it's like I emailed you like six months ago. I've read your book, and I was like, I'm going to have him on. I'm doing the podcast, right? I'm living the dream. But what's the first thing I say? I turn on my camera, and I'm like, oh, I got a pimple. And it's like it's it completely, you know, eclipses everything. And it's despite these these multiple uh, – these these merv tip thermonuclear not even the atomic bomb i mean the hydrogen bomb on these missiles and these submarines and out in the woods and sdi and we're going at each other and we got spies and we got hansen and all james and you're taking pictures inside of your squash racket or what the hell he's doing and you have all this stuff and at the same time a lot of it just comes down to the soviets kind of felt inferior there's a little bit of inferiority mm-hmm. complex uh reagan uh, kind of took his acting along with it. He played the role of president and was, there's an evil empire. And you see just how much that does. I mean, really, when the elephants fight, you can see that like downward trickling ripple. And then it's not even, oh, we got SDI and now we're going to have peace. It wasn't that at all. It was just they kind of met up and they kind of hit it off, right? They were, you know, they just kind of goofed off and it was like, oh, all right, what's up? In a chalet on Lake Geneva by a log fire yeah. on a cold winter's evening, yeah. you know, and just found they got on well. <laughs> yeah, right. It's and it's just like, huh. And it, I mean, it's it's almost cheesy. If it was a movie, it'd be cheesy, right? Exactly. But it's yeah, what you happened. Couldn't write, you yeah. couldn't write stuff. Yeah, you, know? you, you, you couldn't write the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's like that's what happened. You can't write that. Yeah, they they have the lighting just right for the cameras. The log fires going, and it's like, should we go cut off the president? And it's like you should lose your job if you think that's what you do. And right. Right. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's almost kind of like a blind date. There's almost like a reality, right? It's like they got the whole thing. It's like the lawns mode, the log fires going, like Ronnie's got his cards, don't worry. And they've all got, oh, you know, it's kind of like drama. Like, oh, oh, Ronnie went and met him at the limousine and he wasn't wearing a coat, but you notice he was wearing a coat. Now, what does that mean? And it's like, this is just the fate of billions of people in the biosphere. But at the same time, it's kind of beautiful that can be remedied with just, I mean, not to sound eye-rollingly cheesy, but when you see the other person as a human and not as an evil empire, but rather a difference of, hey, you're communist for capitalist, but is it a Susie and a John and an Igor and a whatever? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, th- I think these things, we've always got to remember that no matter how sophisticated the systems are that are built up around, in this case, we're discussing nuclear weapons, but it could be lots of other things as well. In the case of nuclear weapons, you know, there are very sophisticated protocols, fail-safe systems, um, a dual controls, electronic blocks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very sophisticated system to control nuclear arsenals. But in the end, there's an individual sitting somewhere who's got to make a decision. And that individual is going to make his decision on, or her decision on all sorts of bases that aren't necessarily rational. The thing about crises is that as crises escalate, it's very difficult to keep them rational. The opportunity for misunderstandings, for miscalculations, for panic to come in. And that's as true today. You know, it's not that we're, we're better at all this today than we were in the 1980s. It's just as true today in, with North Korea, with Iran, with the uh, Islamic State. You know, there's, there's all sorts of possibilities for things to get out of control very, very quickly. And somebody somewhere has got to make a decision how to respond. Yeah. 
What we've got to be thankful in 1983, and this might be because the Soviet leaders had lived through the Second World War, the immense destruction of Soviet Russia that that had seen. You know, the Germans absolutely laid waste to hundreds of thousands of square miles. 27 million Russians died in, in what they called the Great Patriotic War, you know. And the guys who were in charge in 1983 had lived through that. So they were that bit more hesitant. They weren't quite as gung-ho. You know, they knew what the destruction of a generation looked like. And they didn't want to see that again. Um, and that's my explanation, more, more than anything, why they didn't press the button that night, because they knew that they would be committing uh, a, a national suicide by doing that. They'd seen a bit of that in their early lives in the 1940s, and they didn't want to see it again in the 1980s. But in the end, the point I'm making is that somebody somewhere has to, and it's, a, it's the human factor that ultimately controls all these things. Is somebody's got to make a decision, and Reagan was very clear on this. He wrote about it afterwards. He said, you know, what if the Soviets had a submarine uh, in the west of the Atlantic that fired a missile, could hit the hit the White House in six minutes. He says, I've got five minutes to decide how to respond to a blip on a radar screen. How could anybody make a sensible decision, the consequence of which might be the end of planet Earth? How can anybody make sensible decisions under those sorts of pressures? But in the end, you know, (laughs) we're human beings. Somebody somewhere has to make a decision, and that's as true today as it was in the 1980s. I almost wonder if, and this is, I guess, where I turn into to the armchair expert in my podcast, is I'll often find myself talking about, you know, coronavirus or assassinations, and it's like, hey, let's remind, I'm 30 years old, I don't have a medical degree, I wasn't in the military, I'm not a nuclear <laughs> physicist, but because it's my podcast and I can be an armchair uh, professional, I'll do it anyway. I wonder if, I wonder if, like, once every 10 years once every 20 years, like somewhere out in the South Pacific, if they just did like a globally televised, like 4K HDR broadcast testing of like a thermonuclear weapon, maybe if you did one every 10 years, maybe that would put the fear of God into everyone so you can't forget it. Yeah, it's a good idea. I mean, they did do that in the 50s, of course. Oh, yeah, well, that was, it was in all style. The, yeah, yeah. All, all those first... Uh, um, hydrogen explosions in Bikini Atoll and, and, uh, and other places in the Pacific, you know, tens of thousands of tons of coral were sort of picked up and thrown, in, thrown into the stratosphere by these huge explosions. The, the footage of them, if you look at film, I watch them all the time. It is, it is just awesome. It, it's overwhelming. And so I think you could be right. Yeah, it, it'll just remind you. Of course, all those. All those tests were banned. Yeah, well, yeah, like, sixty-three, you know, I think, or seventy, or whatever. But yeah, yeah right. It was after after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the um, Partial Test Ban Treaty, and so on. But um, but I think you could be right, or maybe we should all just you know get get the film of those explosions out and run them, you know, every every Christmas or something, and just say thank God we've got through another year, you know, yeah. without having this mushroom cloud See, over a part of our planet, you know. See, I think you would, would, yeah, and then what, it was it Castle Bravo? That one pulled up 80 million tons of coral. There's a fun fact a lot of people don't know when they're testing the SR-71 Blackbird. 
up at the uh, upper heights, like 85,000 feet, they would start, it would start to get this black goo on the uh, windshield, or not the windshield, the cockpit glass. And they weren't sure what it was. They weren't sure if this was like, is this some sort of weird caustic corrosion that only happens at Mach 3? Because, you know, they're testing these new boundaries. What it was is uh, there's quintillions and quintillions of uh, perfectly preserved but dead and frozen insects that were sucked up from the thermonuclear tests in the 50s and 60s, pulled them up into the not enough, they weren't close enough to be vaporized, but they got sucked up and they've been floating around just below low Earth orbit and they're still there. But that's, I don't even really know why I made that point. But the thing is, is like, there might be something that is, that is, I mean, half of it's, I just kind of want to see a nuclear weapon with a modern like cameras, but you know, I think when you look at like an old, you know, video of it, you do see their awesome power. But it's also, you know, you see guys that, you know, they're also living fans of Mickey Mantle. And you see women that look like Marilyn Monroe and, the, and you know, they have the cars that they're testing. But they're, they're like 1940s, you know, Fords and stuff. And it, it, it might be hard to connect. I think more than anything is, I mean, you might need to have world leaders there. It might be, I forget who it was, but someone described what it was like to witness a nuclear explosion. And uh, he said, it wasn't just that you saw it. It was, you know, it was 60 miles away and instantly it felt like, uh, I I think as you said in your book, it's like sticking your hand into an open oven, like you're getting a pizza out. Uh, They also described in, um, I think Annie Jacobson's book, DARPA, she describes, uh, they say, it's more than just what you see and feel, the heat. They say you can actually, they're actually, you can smell it because the shockwave changes, I guess, the density of like ozone at like sea level. You can smell it. You can taste it. They say it, uh, one guy said it uh, feels like it's pouncing into you. said it feels like it's a cat that jumps at you. It jumps into your soul and he goes, you wish it would stop. But there's this whole sensory immersion and it's. You know, when you're when you're watching TV and it's one in the morning, you see a woman come on and it's like for 10 cents a day, you can save a kid in Africa. You're like, put the game back on. But then, you know, you you go visit the local homeless shelter or something. You like see a woman, you know, a widow with two kids and you're like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. So, you know, you see the guy ringing the bell. So you go over and you put 20 bucks in the Salvation Army thing instead of 25 cents because you're like. Oh, it's a, you know, when you get out on a Christmas or on a December morning and you're in the Walmart parking lot and it's cold and it's gray and you see the guy ringing the bell and you're like, oh, this is real. This isn't a thing I see on TV. It might help. And again, I kind of just want to see one, but it might help that you bring the world leaders out there on some aircraft carrier and just you just drop a 10 megaton. I mean, not even one of those little puny kilotons. I mean, you know, the end of the world, the sky turns red. Maybe. Well, this could be your next project, Tommy. <laughs> after, after the podcast series, you know, it could be, get the world leaders together and uh, take them to the South Pacific, you know, to see a, a 24 megaton explosion, you know. You know, if that's my next project, I'm going to end up with a, uh, I'm going to end up with Hanson and ADX Florence. <laughs> I can start looking for a nuclear weapon to go off. <laughs> I've kept you for 45 minutes. This has been a fantastic talk. I would love to have you on again sometime. Um, if we, is there anything that we, you want to touch on that we didn't touch on? No, I don't think so. No, no. I mean, what? There's lots of things we could talk about. <laughs> you know, we could talk about mutual assured destruction and, and all of that. But no, I think I think in terms of, of of discussing this little known event, I mean, I felt very strongly that in writing 
the book, there was enough information. The National Security Archive in, uh, in, in Washington, uh, part of George Washington University, have done a fantastic amount of work in, in sort of in, in getting information out of the federal archives uh, about this event. Because in America, you know, when the, when the CIA realized the scale of this, it was pretty embarrassing, actually. Yeah. You know, but for them, it was very, very embarrassing. Um, nobody really wanted to talk about it very much. I mean, all the parties involved in the events of 1983 were embarrassed. The KGB were embarrassed because they misunderstood the West and nearly launched a nuclear war, nuclear Armageddon. The CIA were embarrassed because they didn't spot what was going on. NATO was embarrassed because they, their war game had nearly triggered World War III. Um, so when I started writing the book, nobody really wanted to talk about it. Nobody really wanted to admit what had happened or, or how serious it had been. But then with the work of the National Security Archive in Washington, slowly the information was sort of pulled out from the archives and to the point where I felt you could write a, a full narrative of, of the events leading up to that year. And uh, I hope we've covered those events reasonably simply. You know, you have to read the book to get the full detail. Um, but, you know, I hope we've covered the arc of what happened in that extraordinary and dangerous year. I think it's a beautifully written book. I've uh, been obsessed with the Cold War for probably five, six years now. I've really been obsessed with it. And um, I had never even heard of it. It's you know it's not something like typhoon class Russian subs where like I've I've remembered that like I remember reading like a Wikipedia entry in high school and like I know they're the biggest and it's it's a periphery that one day you kind of go into. I had never heard of 1983. I had never heard of the entire scare. Which, again, for anybody that's remotely interested in this, I'll put the link in the description. It's uh it's on Audible. It's a fantastic listen. It scare the bejesus out of you. But I do have to ask. And that maybe this is just pure conjecture, and maybe we won't know in in your lifetime or my lifetime. Do you think there's another 1983 out there that's already happened but hasn't been uncovered? I mean, maybe around 9/11, could there be something in 08? Could there be? You got There's there's something hiding in the shadows. Was there another fingers on the button? Not that I'm aware of. No, no. There certainly wasn't in the Cold War era. Um, I, I think we know enough now about how near we came to nuclear Armageddon on several occasions with accidents and technical failures and misunderstandings and computer malfunctions and so on. You know, I think I think we know those those stories by now. When we come to the to to, to more recent events, I, I, I think probably the jury stood out a little bit. I mean, it's difficult it's difficult to say entirely. You know, people. People, some people look back on the, the, the Cold War with almost a sense of nostalgia. You know, it was a bipolar world. There was them and us. You the know, bad guys, the, the good guys. The bad guys and the goodies. Exactly, yeah. Uh, there were two superpowers and their allies, um, and, and that was it. Now it's a much more complicated sort of multipolar world, you know, uh, where it is possible that there could be regional nuclear conflicts. For instance, India and Pakistan are both nuclear-powered states uh, and they regularly get into uh, regional confrontations and if one side get an advantage over the other it's possible that the losing side will say well now we resort to nuclear weapons you know we know Israel has nuclear weapons in the Middle East and I suspect Iran will have nuclear weapons fairly soon so goodness knows how that's going to play out North Korea you know probably the most unpredictable state on this planet is developing some sort of nuclear capability. So 
I think the jury's still out as to whether there either there recently has been or whether there might yet be another of these sort of crises that, that escalates out of all control. But I don't know of one. If I did, Tommy, there would be another book on the subject, but uh, I, I, I don't know yet. So if anybody watching this has got a good story like that, please please contact me. You know, <laughs> I, I, could, I, I could recommend uh, Will Arkin, the author Will Arkin. I've had him on here a couple of times, and uh, he's written a ton of books. But um, I love his book, uh, uh, The Generals Have No Clothes. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty, yeah. pretty new. The last chapter, the, the entire book is great, but the last chapter is really a standalone chapter. And it's, um, it's the, I think as he was writing, it was like 2019 and then it finished when COVID happened. And he writes about us watching COVID, us watching, you know, is it going to come to the U.S. December, 2019, January, 2019. And I think I want to say in February, 2020, we, uh, we actually, took two separate groups of individuals inside, not just inside of NORAD, but segregated from the rest of NORAD. We had a blue team and a gold team and they had to be quarantined for 14 days. And then once they were in there, they couldn't interact with anyone else in NORAD. They couldn't leave. They're on like extended stays. Their families were told, Hey, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're serving their country and they had their own like HEPA, like, or HEPA, like filtration systems. And they were there. And uh, for the first time, I think from the Cold War, they actually uh, shut the doors, uh, the vault doors at Cheyenne Mountain. They buttoned it up. And then they had these, uh, they were planning for civil unrest from COVID. But, and what they didn't foresee is that it actually started to happen with George Floyd. But they used that same war plan to where, and I think a lot of it's still highly classified, but it was they were slowly moving, you know, military supplies to different cities in the United States. And we actually had our own little, if I'm recalling correctly, we almost had our own little like DEFCON system for COVID. And I'm butchering it, and so I don't want to speak out of turn because I'm, I don't want to be fake news. But we had these quarantine teams inside of NORAD, which can survive a direct or was designed for it, not anymore, just for 2020 with the, with the breakdown. They were preparing for the breakdown of civil law. And then they were looking at COVID and potential breakdowns, which I said turned out to be George Floyd. And then they were preparing. They knew the 2020 election. They knew six months out. They're like, there's no way this goes off without a hitch. I mean, you got to think, is it going to be the year 2050 and we get it the classified book? And it's, you know, it's part two of 1983. It's 2020. <laughs> Biden, Trump and COVID. How America. We, I mean, I would imagine that we probably. There's probably some, maybe not DEFCON 2, but I would say someone somewhere. Maybe we had a couple B2 spirits up in the sky somewhere. I don't know. Again, I also want to see that. And as you said, KGB, CIA, they, they'll they get what you want to see. They'll fabricate it. So a lot of times I can fabricate my own realities. But um, who knows? Not that that can be proved, but um, that is an interesting book. I will let you go. I've now kept you 10 minutes longer than I said I would because I'm a terrible host. Thank you so much for coming on here, man. You're absolutely brilliant. I love your book. Um, I will listen to it again just because I like it. I highly recommend it to anybody listening. It's on Audible. Cough up 15 bucks. Go get it. It's perfect. And um, I'll email you when this episode is up. And uh, I'd love to chat with you again sometime. Do you have another book in the works? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, I've been uh, working on uh, another book over the last few years. But it's... uh, it, it's it's related to some World War II subjects now because I can't find that other big uh, nuclear scare story from the Cold War. You see, I've gone back to World War II. 
Well, hey, that's an endless well, too. World War II and Cold War. As you showed with 1983, you know, I don't think these subjects can be beat to death. Just when you think you've learned everything, I mean, you're, you have a whole book that opens up a whole new chapter that, and a, not a negligible one. So as you can tell, though, I'm going to keep talking because I like the sound of my voice. So I will let you go, sir. I will email you when the episode is up. Um, thank you. And uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. So, thank you, uh, sir. And thank you for your patience and putting up with my uh, persistence. But as you can tell, I legitimately love your book and I wanted to talk to you. If that meant waiting six months, I, I'd do it. So thank you, sir. God bless. Take care. Go buy the books, guys. Thank you so much, sir. Mr. Taylor Downing, go buy the book, 1983. Thank you. Good night. You have a wonderful evening. Recording stopped. God bless America. God bless the UK. Take care, everybody.